Hi, it's Lynn Power. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Masami, and I just finished a podcast with Robert Miller called Follow Your Dream. You're going to love it. Take a listen. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 191 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Steve Cuden, who was the co-creator of the hit Broadway musical Jekyll and Hyde writing the show's original book and lyrics. Steve has spent a lifetime in the Broadway theater world, and he's got some wonderful insights and experiences to share. He is also the host of the Story Beat podcast, featuring all sorts of creative types, including a recent interview with yours truly that I feature on the Follow Your Dream podcast website. My featured song in this episode, and I always feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end. And in this case, I decided that the song I would feature is called The Night Was a Mystery from the album Summer of Love 2020, my first solo album that was recorded remotely during the pandemic. I chose this song for a simple reason, Jekyll and Hyde is a mystery too. So I thought it fits perfectly. So Steve Cuden, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you, Robert. It's a great pleasure to be here. All right. So how do you do everything that you do? You got too much stuff on your plate. You shouldn't be able to do it all, but somehow you do. Tell me about that. I wish I could tell you. You just keep doing it. It's been my whole life's thing where you just keep plowing forward. I don't know any successful people in any industry, but especially not in the entertainment industry, that are not very actively pursuing some goal all the time. It's about it's about setting goals and attempting to achieve them, whether you do or not. Yep, I agree with that. In fact, one of the things that I believe in very strongly is that everything works better and requires an action plan. Mm. And for me, an action plan is just a series of baby steps, because if you think of a project as the gigantic entire project, you'll probably get intimidated and you'll go home and you'll cry and you won't even start it. But if you think about it in terms of one baby step leading to another baby step, you can get an awful lot of stuff done. Well, you know, that's the old uh, the old saw is that if you if you have an elephant and you want to eat the elephant, where do you start? And the answer is anywhere. And you just keep eating <laughs> one bite at a time. <laughs> and, right. and that's what it is. It's, it is literally one step in front of the other. And I have told my students for a very long time, you, you can't accomplish a whole anything really of any magnitude in one sitting. It takes a long time to develop it, to think about it, to put the steps down, to write it, to rewrite it. There are lots of steps involved. So it, it it is a, it's a step-by-step process. And so in answer to your first question, I, you know, I do a lot of things at the same time, but they don't all get achieved at the same time. They get achieved in bits and pieces and one at a time. Sure. Okay. I like to go back to the formative years of some of my guests, and I'd like to find out from you, was it always your dream to be in show business? 
Yes, from as far back as I can remember, though maybe not all the way back to when I was five years old, but when I was a kid and had gone away to summer camp when I was seven or eight years old, I, uh, I somehow, I don't remember exactly how, but somehow I was cast in a, uh, a production of um, uh, Guys and Dolls at summer camp. For the people all said, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. People all said, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. And the devil will drag you under by the sharp lapel of your checkered coat. Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. And once I got on stage and heard applause and laughter and, and was in the lights and all that, that was it. It got under my skin and I have yet to be able to expunge it from from within my bloodstream. All right. Most important. Were you Nathan Detroit or who were you in the play? No, I, you know, I honestly can't remember. I think <laughs> I, there was a there was a part in it. I, I can't remember who I was. I was definitely not Nathan Detroit because I was I was a younger kid at the time and I might have even just been in the chorus. But suffice to say, it was enough to more than get into me. And it has never left. Even when I was broke in L.A. for years, I was broke trying, struggling and doing my thing. I never thought I could do anything else or would do anything else. So it was in your DNA, huh? Mm -hmm. It really was. And I've always been a ham. I've always been, you know, a, uh, you know, a bit of an extrovert to the outside world, but an introvert to myself, which I think makes sense for an ideal writer. And so I, I have never not thought about being in the business of show. All right. What aspect of show business attracted you initially? Was it writing? Was it acting? Was it singing? What did you want to do? Well, I think initially I was I was destined to become a star, like so many people. But of course, that that never panned out. Uh, the writing came much later, which is where my bread and butter has been. I originally enjoyed being on stage until I had things happen to me that that lots of people, you hear about lots of people having this similar experiences. As I started to get a little older, when I say that, I'm saying late teens, early 20s, um, I started to get the nerves just from dealing with having to be on stage and memorizing lines and all that. And I didn't care for it. The, the nerves got to me and I didn't want to not be involved. So I started to find other ways to remain involved. And that that mainly turned out to be writing and a uh, little tiny bit of producing, a little tiny bit of directing, but mainly writing. You know, it's funny. I've told this story before on the podcast, but I, I play, a, I'm a musician at home. Right. And I can play in front of as many people as you could possibly have in an audience. And I've played before some very big audience, and a lot of small audiences too. But where I was the most scared and frightened was when my band, Project Grand Slam, was in an episode of a television show that was a hit at the time called Lipstick Jungle. Uh, yeah. It was it starred Brooke Shields. And in the show, we were playing the band that her husband in the show supposedly played with previously. And I had one line that I had to say. They gave me <laughs> one line, which was basically, hey, so-and-so, come up on the stage and play with us, something like that. Well, it took me 38 takes to get that right because I was terrified of it. All right, thank you. Before the next number, we'd like to call up a special guest. Shane Healy, get your tired ass up here. Go, go, have fun, go! <laughs> I, I think your one line is actually, in a way, harder 
unless you're a, you know, a skilled professional with a lot of work under your belt, that one line is harder because all the pressure is on that one line. So if you start to think about it too much, you're, you might just do what you did and that was mess it up somehow. Oh but God. if you had 20 lines, it gets a little easier because you've got one after the other, after the other, after the other, and sort of you're memorizing all of those. All I saw was all of these people, the actors, the technical people, the director, the lighting people, they're all staring at me. Okay. And I had to get the line right. And that's when I said, I think I better stick to music. Well, you were costing them a lot of money. I'm sure you were doing. you're right. I'm sure you're, they didn't ask me back. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you, you didn't you didn't have a recurring role i did not have a recurring role okay so you were bitten by the stage bug the broadway bug and somehow or other you got into writing which led to jekyll and hyde let's hear about that transition well that's sort of all of a piece um when i went away i finally graduated from the university of southern california and I also have a long background as a lighting designer in the theater. It's something I did from a young age as well. I was always fascinated by lights. And I've done quite a bit of lighting design, though it's not anywhere near my primary focus anymore. But while I was there, I was the master electrician. After I graduated, I became the master electrician for the University of Southern California Theater School. And during that time, a young man who was all of 18 or 19 years old came in and sold a show, a musical that he had written, to the then artistic director, John Hausman. And this fellow that sold this musical was named Frank Wildhorn. And that was the John Hausman? That was the John Hausman from the Paper Chase and from having produced uh, Mercury Theater. All right, a little test for you. What was that famous line that he said in Paper Chase? It was, uh, Mr. Hart, here is a dime. Go and call your mother and tell her you will not be finishing law school. <laughs> exactly right. Good for you. You got it, baby. <laughs> Mr. Hart, there is a dime. Call your mother. Tell her this serious doubt about your becoming a lawyer. I will tell you an embarrassing story. I actually went up and said that line to his face. <laughs> and he looked at me like I was a complete idiot, which is exactly <laughs> what I was in that moment. Uh, um, so anyway, while I was the master electrician, in comes Frank Wildhorn, who was, you know, 18, 19 years old, not known by anybody. And he had sold this show to Houseman called Christopher, and the school put the show on. And when that happened, that was one of my responsibilities as the master electrician to install the lighting for the show. And I also operated the lighting board. That a, was a complicated computer board, and I operated that board. And after opening night, Frank would spend every performance in the lighting booth with me watching the show. And we got to chatting and I would sit there and I would critique his show, not necessarily in a nice way, because I didn't really care who he was. <laughs> and he would laugh at everything I said because it was, you know, I was beating him up and he would laugh. And he would say, well, what do you do? And I said, well, while I had been in school, I had written a number of different things trying to get them produced. And one of the things I had written was um, I'd taken Aesop's fables, seven of them, and turned them into a children's show that was all rhymed, all rhymed verse called Aesop Over Easy. And he, I told him about that and I gave him Aesop Over Easy and he went home and read it and he came back and he said, you're a lyricist. And I said, I am. And he said, yes, you are. And then we started working together. And over the years, we started to develop all kinds of things. Um, 
the the very first thing we developed was was called the high and mighty caesar if you can picture trying to do a musical out of the the life of julius caesar not really going to go very far but we wrote songs based on that and we wrote a show based on uh, Nicholas and Alexander called The Last Tsar. They were the last Tsar and Tsarina of Russia. And then in 1980, Frank and I um, were sitting around saying, what do we want to do next? And there had been a new show. It was new at the time. It was about a year old, maybe a year and a half old, called Sweeney Todd, written yep. by the, the great maestro, Stephen Sondheim. And we both said, let's do something gothic and horror. And we considered writing uh frankenstein and dracula and the wolfman we looked at uh the phantom of the opera seven years before lloyd weber came out with his version that everyone knows but then one day i said then what if we did a love triangle out of the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde and he said well what does that mean and i said well you've got one guy who's actually two and Currently, if you read the if you ever read the novella, most people right. think it's they've a, read it's it. It's a small little book. It's a hundred pages. It's very easy to read, and most people think they know it, and they really don't because it's there is no love story in it. There's no romance in it. There are no women in it. There's a mention of a little girl on a page, and there's a mention of a maid, a housekeeper on one page, and there are no women in it. And it's three diary entries from three different people, and he disappears at the end. There's no there's no plot. So where did everybody get the story from? I mean, th that story was out there before you guys did the, the play. Yes, because there were people that developed it with love stories in it, especially for Hollywood. I see. And then we took it in a slightly different direction. And we had the good girl, bad girl angle. So we had the, the girl from the upper crust and the girl from the streets. And that was how we came up with this romantic story and a horror story. And, and in a gothic world, we, we kept it in the late 1880s uh, in, in London. And uh, that's where it came from. And he and I wrote two entirely separate versions of that show, one in 1980, one in 1986. And it's the 86 version upon which the show that everyone knows uh, th that it's based. All right. What was the 81 version? <laughs> How far apart from 86 was the 81? Far enough. It was a. It was the only thing that we kept from eighty that is still in the show to this day. Is the opening of Act Two, which is Murder, Murder. Read about the hideous murder, the fame religious murder. That poor old bishop, what a shock! Seen walking with his daughter, a moment prior to slaughter. The shepherd tending to his flock. He died in London, son, a slave to martyrdom. He died without complaint. He should be made a saint. He's gone back home to God. It all seems very odd. Why should it be? And many people know that that song. It's a big, dynamic, you know, uh, bombastic song. And we kept that all the way through. And it and it it stayed all the way in it, even after I was replaced, because I was replaced in Jekyll and Hyde in the late 80s by a, um, a fairly famous uh, playwright and lyricist named Leslie Brickus. And they kept all kinds of stuff from the show. They didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater at all. 
and it took the structure of the show, took the characters from the show that we developed and kept a whole bunch of songs and then developed it slightly further. And then nine years after I was out of it, because it took 17 years from 1980 till 1997 to get it to Broadway. Isn't that crazy? It's a it's a remarkably long bit of time. Most shows today. So you can go back in the history of Broadway and used to be there was a time was not uncommon for a, a you know composer lyricist book writer whoever to get together with someone at a party at christmas and they'd sit they'd sit around there singing they'd come up with a story idea and they'd say well let's put this together and they'd write it fast and that thing would be on broadway i'm not joking that thing would be on broadway from christmas it would be on broadway in may or june they would have it written staged produced the whole nine yards and then they would make their money back pretty quickly in those days and that show might be done in several months it wouldn't they weren't looking for the long long runs so rogers and hammerstein didn't take 17 years they, they did not take 17 years they might have taken a number of years in their early work but none of it like 17 years none of it like 10 years today the average length of time for a show to go from inception to broadway if it's going to ever get there is um, somewhere between eight and 12 years. Wow. So what, and what's the cost? If you, if you did the all in cost of getting it to Broadway, what would that be on average? That's so dependent. Of course, when you're dealing with Broadway, you're now dealing with unions and a lot of money to produce and a lot of money to promote and market and so on. And if you're putting a star or two in it, that certainly runs the cost up, but there, there is no, I don't think there is an average, but anymore i think i mean it's in the millions you can't get there for i don't think for under under nine or ten million dollars anymore and to make let's say you do a 10 million dollar broadway show it right. opens up all the fanfare the reviews the hoopla all of that stuff what does it take how long and what does it take to to just to make back that money so the recoupment on investment in a broadway show is really tricky and most broadway shows do never recoup on right. broadway they recoup in the secondary and license you know secondary licensing when they're playing des moines iowa and all of those places. and on bus and truck tours and all the rest of it and around the world when you translate jekyll and hyde's translated into something like 30 languages and plays around the world when it's when we're not in covid and so uh, the answer to your question is it can take years and years Jekyll and Hyde in its four year run on Broadway did not recoup and it recouped. Uh, it took another something like 10 or 12 years before it, it paid back its investors. So it's a long haul. And anybody that thinks that they want to invest in Broadway had better have the money as some kind of a tax write off and not be worried about it. It shouldn't be your nest egg that you invest in Broadway because you're probably the chances are high. You're going to lose the investment. Um, it's high-risk venture capital is what it winds up being. Right. Hey, everybody. This is your host, Robert Miller. The Shakespeare Concert is the new album by my band, Project Grand Slam. Fifteen of our greatest hits recorded live in the studio, one after another, concert style. No overdubs, no fixes, just as is. The album's been praised by so many famous musicians, including Mark Farner of Grand Funk Railroad, Jim Peterick of the Ides of March, Joey D of Peppermint Twist fame, legendary guitarist Elliot Randall, and celebrated British composer Sarah Class. And the music reviewers have called it perfection, five stars, thrilling, and a masterpiece among other accolades. 
You can stream the album on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming services. And it's also available the old-fashioned way for purchase as a digital download or CD from the pgsstore.com. I'll even autograph the CD for you. I want to thank you for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the show on whichever podcast platform you use. And if you want the inside scoop on each new episode, just sign up for our weekly email on our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a long time and a lot of money and a lot of risk in order to get that show you know, on Broadway, as opposed to other forms of art that don't take nearly that long to produce. Right. And there may be recoupment issues everywhere. Certainly in music, there's plenty of recoupment issues. Definitely. Um, but uh, it's, you know, if, if it took me 17 years to do an album, <laughs> it would be something very, very wrong at that point. So I admire the fact that you stuck with it this long. Well, yeah. You know, you, if you're going to put an album out, what are you going to have? 10, 11, 12 songs on it, something like that. Right. Exactly. And, and each of those songs are going to be somewhere between two and a half and five minutes long, typically somewhere in there. They could be longer, they could be shorter, but typically somewhere in there. So you're talking about an hour's worth of music with no staging, no costumes, no lights, no star, you're the star, uh, and so on. The writing of that, so the writing of Jekyll and Hyde was the least amount of time. And so the writing of your music and then whatever production values you go through in a studio to record music, it's just a much less uh, onerous yeah. task. Uh, getting when, when you start to develop a musical, especially one intended for Broadway, if that's your intention, because you don't need to do that, by the way, anymore. Now you can produce them in, in locally and you can produce them in, in other countries if you're connected in that way. But if your intention is to get to Broadway, the, the development time you're going to go through one kind of, uh, you know, re not rehearsal, but uh, audition, not sorry, not audition either. You're going to go through one kind of production after another, whether it's a reading or a loose staging of it, you're going to develop and develop and develop and everybody, here's the problem, Robert, and this is the actual problem. Once you start working in a collaborative way with a lot of people, i.e. producers, a director, stars, designers, and so on. Once you bring all of that collaborative team in, suddenly there are many fingers in the pie. And as soon as you bring all those fingers into the pie, you start to accommodate all of those issues, those questions, those changes, those problems. And that's where, where things take time. Does everybody want to give their input on everything? Is that part of the problem? No, not everybody, but many people do. And once they start to put their input in, here's what happens. Once people start to throw their two cents in, it can take a very confident producer and throw them off their game because they think, well, if this person had a problem with it. Is there a problem here when the producer right. might not be seeing it? So you need a strong championing producer to help take you to that next step when you have that you can get there quicker but if the questions come and you don't know here's the other problem this happens in hollywood every day when you start to make changes to a story that you think works 
and you start to do what I call pulling the threads of the sweater. When you start to take that intricately woven sweater and start to pull at the threads, make changes, sometimes that sweater starts to turn ugly. (laughs) And that's less likely for you writing your own music, heading your own band, taking yourself into a studio, even with somebody else's money. uh, It's less likely to happen in recording an album, though it can happen. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we're talking about something that doesn't really exist any longer. There aren't any more called albums. Unfortunately, you know, nobody has CD players anymore. They used to be standard in, in cars. You can't even find them anymore. Right. Everything now is streaming. So it's song by song. Imagine if you had to do a Broadway show song by song in that same fashion, it would be ridiculous. Well, you, you, you can't, when you're doing, of course, there are examples that differ from this, but by and large, if you're writing a show for Broadway, you're doing, talking about something that's around two hours and 20 minutes in length, somewhere in there, 225, 220, 225. And here's the key. None of those shows that work, with rare exception, none of them work unless the story works. It's all about storytelling. So for the songs, the songs have to become part and parcel with the overall story. And if they don't, then they stick out like sore thumbs and everything falls apart. So the, the, you're developing characters, then you're writing songs that the characters can sing and that, that are proper for the character. Right. Then you're dealing with the songs. Do they work in place in the, in the uh, show itself? So it's all about storytelling. And that's usually the weakest link in most every successful show is the story or the ones that fail in particular, the weakest link almost always is the story. It's rarely the music and the lyrics, rarely. All right. The story thing is central to you. And I want to get to this story beat podcast of yours because I have listened to several episodes. First thing you got to tell me is how do you get all these great guests on there? Because you've had some outstanding guests I listened to the Brian Cranston episode when I contacted you, and it was just terrific. I mean, I love the guy. He's a wonderful actor. You've had people like John Davidson. You've had Sheila Jordan. You had a guy that's one of my little personal favorites in the acting world named Troy Evans. Oh, yes. Creighton Barrel on the Bosch series. Absolutely. Um, Love that guy. So talk a little bit about Storybeat. Why'd you create it? How'd you get these great guests? What are you going to do with it? So much of my life, Robert, has been one link leading to another with no plan to get there in the first place. And then (laughs) then you have to make plans to make things succeed. But my life has been one interesting succession of links. And I taught screenwriting for 10 years at a little university here in Pittsburgh called uh, Point Park University. And while I was there, they opened a new facility with a TV studio and a radio studio in it that could also be a podcast studio. And the guy that operated the facility put out a a call to all the professors and said, does anybody want to do a podcast? This is uh, about four and a half years ago. And I thought to myself, hmm, that's interesting. I, I think I would like to at least explore that potential. It came out of the blue. I wasn't looking to do one. I didn't have one planned. I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I thought I had written two books, one called uh, uh, Beating Broadway and one called Beating Hollywood, two books about how to write stories for Broadway musicals and how to write stories for movies. 
And so my thing, I, I teach taught screenwriting. I'm all about storytelling and about how things operate, how things work. So I thought I'd like to do a show about how people do what they do, not promote their work, not talk about how wonderful they are as humans. Uh, I want to talk about how they create, about creativity. And so that's where Storybeat came from. And I started to do shows and it took a little while for me to get my feet under me as to what it is I was doing. And I sort of fumfered around for a good five, six months of various guests and stories. And this, I can tell you for fact certain, there's a tendency, not always hundred percent true, but there's a tendency for people who are in show business to like to promote. Which is why God created Johnny Carson. <laughs> That's exactly right. And people love the fact that there's yet one more thing that's in the media about them, whether it's in the press or whether it's yeah. on a podcast or whatever. And so that's why it's, you're not going to get everybody. You're not going to get everybody you want, but you'll get plenty. There's, there are lots of uh, great people out there to talk to. And every one of them has their own unique take on things. I agree with that. We've been speaking with Steve Cuden. Steve, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, Robert, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, now we're going to listen again to the song that we started out the podcast with underneath the introduction. It's a song that I wrote for my album, Summer of Love 2020, written during the pandemic. It's called The Night Was a Mystery. Thank you so much, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.